Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Trucker-Bordy. And in our last installment of the bourbon series, we left off with the last French bourbon and kind of saw how the family's reign fizzled out there. But the influence of the Bourbons extended beyond the borders of France into several other countries, most notably Spain, where the members of the Bourbon line became monarchs starting in the 1700s, and they ruled on and off for years. Even the current king of Spain, Juan Carlos I, is a Bourbon monarch. Yeah, how about that? It definitely worked out for them much better in Spain than France. Yeah, so here we're going to take a look at the first of the Bourbon monarchs, though, the first of the Spanish Bourbons, I should say, Philip V. And he was a king who saw some positive reforms during his reign, but is also thought by some historians to have been weak, a lazy man who was ruled by the women in his life, and many have even thought that he was mad. But author Henry Common, who wrote Philip V of Spain, the king who reigned twice, and this is one of the only English language biographies of the king, um, he gives a different take on Philip's sort of crazy behavior. And so we're going to take a look at some of those theories, too, and explore why the king actually gave up his throne for seven months in 1724. Yeah. And so first of all, though, we've got to address how the Bourbons got to Spain in the first place. And interestingly, it kind of indirectly has to do with the inbreeding of the Habsburgs. It's all started in the late 1600s because King Charles II, who was of the Spanish Habsburg dynasty, was in really ill health. Um, I mean, really, really, really ill health. He's actually been suggested quite a bit as an episode topic of his own. Um, he suffered from all of the regular Habsburg complaints, and he didn't have a direct heir. So, you know, you're in a bit of a quandary here. Who is going to follow Charles II? Fortunately, there were three candidates, or maybe not so fortunately. <laughs> I think it kind of led to trouble. Yeah, it was unfortunate in some ways. The three candidates were Prince Joseph Ferdinand, who was the son of the Elector of Bavaria, Archduke Charles, who was the second son of the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold, and Philip, Duke of Anjou, the grandson of Louis Fourteenth. All of these guys have Habsburg connections. Who doesn't? Right. (laughs) So other European powers quickly see this as going to be a huge problem. And so they start secretly plotting about how they want to divide up the Spanish territories outside of the Iberian Peninsula. So outside of Spain, what are they going to do with the territories in Italy, the Spanish Netherlands, and so forth? So this is how they handle it. They sign the first Treaty of Partition in 1698, agreeing that Joseph Ferdinand will get Spain, the Spanish Netherlands, and the Spanish colonies. Spain's Italian holdings, however, would be divided between Austria and France. Yeah, and the main goal here is to make sure that one government didn't control this huge Spanish empire. They, they didn't have so much power in Europe. Spain had some other ideas on that topic, though. King Charles catches wind of this treaty, and he and the other Spaniards, they're pretty miffed about it. They want to preserve the integrity of the Spanish Empire. That's their main goal. They want to keep everything that they've worked for together in one piece, not have it broken up into several little pieces. So Charles, he approaches this by altering his will. And in that will, he leaves everything to Joseph Ferdinand intact says it can't be broken up. However, Joseph Ferdinand suddenly dies a few months later, so kind of puts a wrench in his plans. Plus Charles's plans, for sure. And so the European powers get together again, and this time they sign a new treaty. It's not 
very secret at all. And it makes Archduke Charles the king of Spain, and it gives the Spanish territories in Italy to France. So again, kind of busting up the empire a little, making sure that nobody gets all of the pie. Right, but Charles gets back at them. He revises his will at the same time, too. And he decides to take a little bit of a different direction. He's actually advised by his council of state that keeping the Spanish Empire united under a strong Bourbon king is the way to go. So he leaves everything to Philip. With one catch, though, Philip has to renounce all his rights to the French throne. So Charles dies on November 1st, 1700. He kind of makes this will just in the nick of time. And Louis XIV ends up accepting this offer on Philip's behalf. So he's making no concessions to other European countries. He's accepting Spain and all of its territories on behalf of his grandson, Philip. Knowing that he'll likely face war down the line because of it, because nobody's going to want France to be the one in control of all of this. So... Philip sets out for Spain, and he's only 17 years old. He speaks no Spanish, and, of course, he doesn't even have any personal experience on the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, A very unprepared young teenager. Yeah, inexperienced, to say the least. And Louis, however, is very excited about this. Upon Philip's taking formal leave of him in Versailles at the French court, he is excited. He hugs him, embraces him exuberantly, and says, There are now no Pyrenees. Two nations that have for so long been rivals will in the future be a single people. The lasting peace between them will assure the tranquility of Europe. So, again, really pumped about the situation, but I think putting on rose-colored glasses a little bit. Definitely. To think that everything's going to be totally tranquil. And as we'll see, it's actually the opposite of tranquil. So Louis XIV isn't the only one who's pumped up about this new king, though. Spain really welcomed Philip with open arms. They hadn't been happy at all under the Habsburgs, under Charles II. They had really watched their whole country decline. There were economic problems. They lost some of their territorial holdings, really a diminishment of their country. So they thought that this new Bourbon king, Bourbons have a pretty good track record, might offer them a more promising future. And Philip, on his way to Madrid, toured through a lot of other Spanish cities, and he was greeted with fanfare, really welcomed by the Spanish. Yeah, Philip, however, he wasn't quite as excited about this. He wasn't really up to the challenge to take on the problems that Spain presented, yet he was born, just to give you a little background, he was born December 19th, 1683, the son of Louis XIV's son, Louis, and Marie Anne of Bavaria. And he had been brought up in a really protected environment with little contact, if any at all, with the real world. He had been educated by tutors and trained to be a soldier and an athlete, but he was still really withdrawn and hesitant. Some called him slow of speech, and no one really had confidence in his ability to lead, not even Louis, not even his French advisors. Product of the Versailles bubble. Um, So Louis surrounds him with this team of French advisors. This doesn't really do much to help the young man's confidence, but because the French are so sure that he he won't do it right, they make sure that he has all these people who can tell him the correct decisions to make. And um, and the other positive for them is that they get to keep control over Spain. Yeah, too, in, kind of like a puppet a almost. Yeah. There was another problem here, though, too, and that was that Philip had this tendency to get depressed. And it was said that he fell into a deep melancholy upon leaving Louis XIV's court. So... He started out even from a young age having kind of these episodes, and things didn't seem to get much better from there once he was in Spain. He was homesick, as you imagine he might be. 
Um, he had trouble picking up the Spanish language. And actually, just an aside to that, throughout his reign, he continued to speak only French to his family and to his advisors. So just a really, real problem kind of mingling in. It's not a particularly endearing trait for the king. Either. Not at all. And he didn't like anything about his new environment, it seems. He didn't like the Spanish palaces. He didn't like their style of coaches. He didn't like the clothes or the food. And this is kind of one of the funny things, the funny anecdotes, I should say, from Common's book. He explains how Philip didn't like the food. And although he asked for it to be changed, the Castilian-style cooks, they kind of just said no. (laughs) They refused to really change their style of cooking so he ended up having to set up an entirely new French household so that he could eat the stuff that he liked. Didn't you say the cooks would come out and make sure he ate, like watch him? To- right. I don't know if they made sure he ate, but they definitely came out and wanted to place the food in front of him themselves. They really wanted to bring it out to him and see that he was actually eating make their a culinary creations. Yeah. Well, and unfortunately, none of the French really liked life at the Spanish court. All of these Frenchmen who... Philip has surrounded himself with, and they started introducing foreign theater and music to Madrid, and understandably, Spaniards were pretty disappointed that their imported king didn't try at all to pick up some of their ways. Right, so uh, there's a little bit of tension, or not necessarily trouble, but yeah, a little bit of tension here about that. Frustration. People were so excited about this king coming in, and at least in Madrid, they definitely got a little worse of an opinion about him from this, but... Philip, for his part, expressed his displeasure to his tutor. He said, I would rather go back to being Duke of Anjou, and I can't stand Spain. So (laughs) that sums it up, I guess. But you think somebody saying that might just sort of devote himself to trying to turn Spain back into the French he loves and knows. But he really did dutifully try to apply himself to his work for a while, uh, at least through his first year and a half as king in 1701 and 1702, um, even though he suffered two pretty serious bouts of depression during that time. Yeah, the second bout of depression was particularly notable. It occurred while he was visiting Italy, and he was incapacitated for days at a time. He had to be attended to by doctors. You know, everybody was wondering, what's wrong with the king? Nothing seemed to work on him. They bled him. They tried all these things. But there really wasn't anything physically wrong with him, and that's kind of what it came down to. But then something happened that really snapped him out of it. The inevitable Spanish Wars of Succession began, and... This was when the other European powers tried to prevent Philip, whom they guessed was controlled by Louis, and that was pretty much correct, from getting such a large slice of that European pie. Um, just to give you some basic facts about the war, obviously there's a lot more to it, but to keep things succinct, to keep this podcast from being hours long, um, we'll just tell you it officially lasted until about 1713, and it was pretty much an uneven fight from the start. Although Spain had the might of the French army behind them, they didn't really have much of their own army at that point. Um, Bavaria, Cologne, and Savoy all aligned with France, although Savoy ended up later switching sides. Which is going to prove awkward, as we'll later learn. Absolutely. And the anti-French alliance, the other side of this, it consisted of England, the Dutch Republic, and the Emperor Leopold. So basically everyone who had tried to sign a treaty before Charles II passed away. Everyone who might be mad that France was now in possession of Spain and all of its colonies. Exactly. And these powers were later joined by Prussia, Hanover, some other German states, and also Portugal. So suffice to say, France suffered a lot of losses. 
at one point, Louis XIV even tried to kind of back out of the war. He had so many losses in Italy and in the Low Countries, he just kind of wanted to get out of it. But here was the problem. The British wanted him to remove Philip from Spain. They wanted that to be part of the so-called compromise. Louis just refused to do that. Yeah, he was willing to almost remove his military support from Spain, but not flat out turn his back on his grandson. Right. But the tides finally turned on the whole situation when Archduke Charles inherited all the Austrian Habsburg possessions. So at that point, the British and the Dutch, they didn't want him to get the Spanish inheritance as well. So they all compromised. They signed the Treaty of Utrecht, in which Spain lost the Spanish Netherlands and their Italian possessions and just kept Spain in the colonies. So it sort of turned out the way it would have if the treaty had been honored anyway, except with Philip in charge of Spain. And everybody's happy except the Habsburgs that they're not in control of most of Europe. Right. Something kind of ironic was happening here, too, though. Although Spain kind of lost out a little bit on everything that had happened with the Wars of Succession, Philip actually seemed to thrive in wartime from a personality standpoint. He found some sort of respite from his depressive state during this time. He actually risked his life in battles. He participated fully. Um, it was It's actually quite interesting if you think of him being considered like kind of a weak, meek personality. But there were reports of people dying on either side of him in battle. I mean, he really put himself fighting at on. the forefront. And he managed to successfully defend Spain itself, even after battles and the territories were lost. And at one point, he even kind of stands up to Louis when Louis appears to abandon him. In 1709, when Louis tried to back out of the war, Philip wrote to him and said, God has placed the crown of Spain on my head. I shall maintain it as long as I have a drop of blood in my veins. I owe it to my conscience, to my honor, and to the love I receive from my subjects. I shall never give up Spain so long as I have life. I would rather perish fighting." Which is a pretty far cry from his earlier statement that he'd rather be back the Duke of Anjou than the King of Spain. Yeah, so it appears almost as if he's done this 180. Uh, But this is why many Spaniards would later remember him as a valiant king, the hero of his people, because he did go into battle and he was so brave. But the biographer that we mentioned, Common, he actually believes that this was another side to the condition that Philip was suffering from. You see, in his book, he proposed that the king actually had bipolar disorder, which is sometimes known as manic depression. And this had begun in his adolescence with these pockets of depression that we mentioned before. And the war that seemed to snap him out of it, Common suggests, was actually this period of high energy in which he seemed to get better. But he might have actually been getting worse because he was experiencing the highs and lows that he would oscillate between throughout the rest of his life. So while it seems like war wasn't really snapping Philip out of these depressive states, it did seem like his wife had some ability to do that. Uh, he was married twice during his lifetime. His first wife was Marie Louise of Savoy, and they got married right after Philip became king. And she was really young at the time, only 13 years old, but could pretty much hold her own from the start. She tended to the affairs of state while he was off fighting in the war. She ran the household really well, and she kept him happy, which was kind of the most important thing for this king who suffered from depression so severely. He'd be off the map sometimes. They were really an inseparable couple, and he was thought to have really been in love with her. And it didn't always make the French and Spanish advisors very happy because it was maybe a little 
he was a little too much in love with her, they thought. He spent a little too much time with her. And they were also concerned that she had too much control over political decisions being made, that she was, in essence, his chief advisor. Yeah, at that time, women didn't really have a role in government at all. And and men really weren't supposed to publicly display so much affection for their wives, which Philip certainly did. So he kind of went against convention, I guess. But unfortunately, Marie-Louise died of tuberculosis on February 14th, 1714. So she died very young, and Philip was really devastated about it. However, it didn't take him very long to remarry and sort of get over that loss. A search began almost immediately after Marie-Louise's death for a new queen, and they settled on a woman named Elizabeth Farnese, who was the niece of the Duke of Parma. Right away, the king seemed to be as devoted to her as he was to his last wife. And according to Common, she was really devoted to him as well. But this is where accounts tend to differ a bit. So it just depends on who you believe. A lot of historians see Farnese as just a dominating wife who, along with her advisor, Alberoni, used to control her husband and really use him to pursue her own goals. And her goals were mainly to secure a position in her native Italy for her own children. Because it was Philip's second family, of course. Right. Philip already had sons with Marie Louise, and the eldest, Don Luis, was already in line for the Spanish throne. Common disagrees with this point of view, though. He says that Philip himself was motivated to fight for Italian territories on behalf of his son. So... Who knows? We we really don't know who I, whose idea it was. I, I can accept a mixture of both of those ideas, I think, that both parents would have interests in their children. You would think so. Regardless, Spain did get caught up in conflict with major European powers once again, but this time there was a major difference. And that was that France actually got involved, and this time they were against Spain. I can imagine this is pretty devastating for Philip, who so loves France still, and I mean, eventually, Spain does have some success. In the end, they secured a title in Parma for Don Carlos, later Charles, later Charles III, uh, one of these sons from the second family. But the conflict and the hostility with France was really upsetting to Philip. Yeah, it, it really got to him. He had some serious extended bouts of depression during this period. And during this period, he would actually have to appoint Farnese and Alberoni as regents to manage the government for periods of time. He was just going through a lot. He was obsessed with death. He would think he was dying and that he had all these diseases. Just an example of one of the things that he went through, he thought that a, the sun had struck his shoulder and penetrated his inner organs. Which would be a disturbing thought, I think. Absolutely. After the conflict ended, though, and Spain patched things up with France, Philip still managed to fill his role pretty well and pretty adequately for a few years. He he kept a semi-normal schedule. He took care of political decisions, hunted in the afternoons. That was one of his favorite pastimes. And he even participated in court activities, balls and dancing, celebrations, and spent lots and lots of time with his queen. They were also, like he and Marie Louise, they were inseparable. They loved to spend time together. So things seemed to be fairly normal, even after these massive bouts of depression that he'd had. He managed to gain some sense of normal see now and again. Until he surprises everyone and in January 1724 announced that he was resigning the throne and leaving Spain and all of its territories to his eldest son, Don Luis. And obviously a king resigning the throne, not a not a particularly old or sickly king either, is a shock. And the truly shocking thing about it, though, is that it 
turned out that it wasn't a sudden decision. It wasn't just that he was suffering more and more from his depression and just decided to to pull the plug on being king. It was something that Philip and Elizabeth, too, had thought about for a really long time. Yeah, they first signed a resolution, a kind of secret written vow that he would do this. He would abdicate the throne. They signed a resolution to this effect in 1719, following his distress about the conflict with France that had gone on while he was pursuing interests in Italy. And they repeated this vow that they made every year after that. So basically what they did is they wrote this vow out on a sheet of paper, you know, on such and such a date in 1723, we plan to resign the throne. And then every year after that, they confirmed it by, you know, writing a sentence, confirming their intentions and signing underneath it. So this was something they had calculated for a long time, or at least Philip had, and Elizabeth kind of went along with it. That's what we can assume. I mean, a very bizarre situation. And the reason he gave for resigning his throne was that he wanted to serve God, free from other cares, to meditate on death and see his salvation. Uh, Of course, Spain, even even the pious Spanish don't quite buy this explanation. And a lot of people thought that maybe he just wanted to make himself available in case that French throne came open, because, of course, by being king of Spain, he had renounced his claim to the French throne. Right. And that was a very real possibility. But Common, the biographer, says that there's really no evidence that this was the case. We can only take the information that he gave us, the, the motives that he gave us as, as truth. But he thinks that this, these actions, this abdication also had to do with his bipolar disorder. Philip was very preoccupied with death and Common suggests that abdicating the throne was kind of a, a type of political suicide. So represented a death in that way. Yeah, for this man who was obsessed with death. But regardless of his motives, the situation didn't last long at all, especially when you consider how many years of planning go into it. Because Philip's heir, Luis, got smallpox and died in August of 1724, so that very same year. And on his deathbed, he made his father his successor. And Philip didn't really want to become king again. I mean, that's like going into retirement and coming back right away. But he was convinced, he was talked into it, since his other sons were still considered too young to rule. And the Spanish people, understandably, were not that excited to have him back. This guy who's quit on them, um, they were pretty happy with Luis. You know, finally they have this... Spanish-born king, somebody who who knows Spain and appreciates Spain, and they're back to their their Bourbon king again. Yeah, back to foreigners on the throne. And it's funny that he, Philip, I mean, had been a foreigner on the throne for his entire reign, but this was sort of the first time that his legitimacy in that position had been questioned. So it was kind of a big deal. But Philip at first seems to do reasonably well in his return to the throne, though his illness still comes and goes now and again. Then in 1728, the first major signs of a change in his mental health came about. He started doing a few weird things at this time. He would spend several days at a time in bed, and he also inverted the order of day and night. So his once normal schedule that involved taking care of business in the morning and hunting in the afternoons now involved him holding audiences with ambassadors at midnight and meeting with his ministers in the wee hours of the morning, sometimes finishing meetings around dawn. I'm sure they loved that. Uh, It also became clear that he was thinking about abdicating again, which... 
I mean, come on. <laughs> I don't know if you can <laughs> you try that already. Do that twice. Uh, this time, Elizabeth, instead of being his, his partner in abdication, managed to stop him and she had to really go to great lengths to do so. She took away all the paper and ink from the royal suite so he wouldn't be able to dash off a little note of abdication and send it on to the appropriate party. And she had a watch kept on him at all times too to, to make sure in case he did get a hold of some ink or let some important person know. But still he rebelled and he tried these escape attempts from the palace. Um, Odd escape attempts. Very odd escape attempts. Yeah, he would try to get out of the palace half naked in the early hours of the morning and she would have to have the guards kind of restrain him and look out for him and bring him back. But by that summer, everyone at the palace knew about his condition because that would be a hard secret to keep. That would be a very hard secret to keep. And after that, things just seemed to get worse. He would give audiences to ambassadors dressed only in his nightshirt. So apparently had some fixation with not being in clothes. But in addition to that, he couldn't sleep. He would have terrors, delusions and hallucinations. He was also paranoid and he thought people were plotting to poison him. So there was one story that I saw where he would actually wear one of Elizabeth's shirts underneath his shirt because there was some shirt poisoning thing that was going on at the oh, time. he was afraid somebody would, would give him a gift of a poison shirt or exactly. get to his laundry somehow. Get into his closet, maybe. At night, he would bite himself, scream, or start singing randomly. Sometimes he would relieve himself in his bed. At one time, he even believed that he was a frog, and at another, he believed he was dead. So all kinds of extremes going on. Um he also had bulimia, too. He would eat voraciously for an hour or two at a time without stopping. Also, though, he started to just generally neglect his person himself. He, I think when his disease advanced, not necessarily around 1728, but in the 30s, he wouldn't bathe regularly. He wouldn't cut his toenails sometimes. He would lie in bed for days at a time and really just not take care of them at all. So he would have trouble walking then when he got up again because his toenails were so long. He also wouldn't cut his hair and so it grew to be this kind of crazy mass of hair, and he would wear a wig over it to kind of, to I guess, it. mitigate the situation. Yeah, but guy. it's it's interesting though. In in the midst of all of this, there was one thing that would kind of snap him out of it every now and then, and and bring him back to a functioning state. And that was the idea that he might claim the French throne. Um, one example, he heard that Louis the Fifteenth was sick with smallpox in 1728, and and he did snap out of it briefly. He thought that maybe if he was back in France again, all his problems would be solved, and he could be happy, and he could go back to the idealist man he he thought he once was. Yeah, again, that was probably just another factor in his illness, probably just more delusions, because he obviously had a medical disorder that couldn't just be fixed by changing locations. And there was obviously no way for him to go back to, to France. To get to France, either. yeah. Well, that is also an aspect of it, too. Elizabeth Farnese, though, stood by him throughout all of this. She ended up actually having to take control of government at times when he was incapacitated. But she also tried to alleviate his suffering. So she was very kind towards him as well. She did this in a couple of ways. She traveled with him, took him out of Madrid to visit other palaces in Spain, in Seville, in Arnwes, for example. And they did this for extended periods of time. I think in Seville especially, they spent five years there or something, moved the entire court there. And it gave him a change of environment, but it also took him out of the public eye. So it served a couple purposes. 
She also did something else to kind of help him out, though, and help him escape his depression. In 1737, she invited a famous castrato singer known as Farinelli. His real name was Carlo Broschi. And she invited him to Madrid into the palace. At that time, Philip was in one of his periods of really deep depression. So he was lying in bed. I don't think he even attended the first performance. Just to give you a little bit of background on Farinelli before we go on, Farinelli is often called one of the greatest singers in the history of opera. A quote from Nicholas Clapton, and he curated a 2006 exhibit on Castrati at London's Handel House Museum. He said, Farinelli was more famous than Madonna, Johnny Depp, and David Beckham combined. So this would be the equivalent of asking David Beckham to your backyard to do free kicks or something. Yeah, while you have Madonna perform a concert and (laughs) Johnny Depp do some improv or something. Pretty amazing. And hearing Farinelli sing really did help snap Philip out of his depression, at least for a little bit. So the queen demanded that Farinelli sing for them every single day, and he became a real part of their lives. He was given a title, which essentially translated to my personal assistant, and he didn't ever have to give a public concert again. I mean, so imagine people of that fame level, Madonna or Johnny Depp or somebody just retiring to become someone's personal assistant, putting on private shows. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, he sang only for the royal family and lived rent-free in the royal palace. And he set up an Italian opera at court. And he was paid under the table, too. And he was paid, his pay was tax-free. He was paid the same rate that he was being paid in London before he came to Madrid, but didn't have to pay taxes so, on Oh, yeah, that. really raking it in. But, you know, some compromises on Farinelli's part, of course. Um, he had to adapt to the king's strange waking hours and make himself available at all hours of the night. And every single night he would sing eight or nine arias. And the general belief, and I actually thought this, was that Farinelli sang the same songs every single night, which makes it a little disturbing, I guess. Yeah, Um, I'd heard that as well. But apparently he had a much larger repertoire that he would sing for the king. Um, I think you said that Common claimed Farinelli's papers showed he sang hundreds of different songs. So so a a more varied program going on nightly. But the singer was kind of a therapist, I get him, a musical therapist. Yeah, therapist, physician. This was maybe the first, one of the first examples of music therapy out there. But although Philip improved a little bit with his music therapy, his basic symptoms never really disappeared. He still kept his weird schedule and really just continued to decline until he passed away quite suddenly on July 9th, 1746. And this made his son Ferdinand King, and that was King Ferdinand VI of Spain. And at the end, many considered him to be mad. So it was really kind of quite sad. But in conversations, most people reported that he was still lucid. And with the help of his advisors, he was able to make many economic and governmental reforms throughout his reign. So who knows if Common's theory about bipolar disorder was correct. But I think judging from reports and things that people say about meeting with him at the time, he was at least able to seem lucid. He was able at least to seem like he was sane Yeah, when and, you spoke to him. And I mean, he... If if we're going to go back to the bourbon series here, I mean, he is at the beginning of a line that, as you mentioned at the beginning, does still exist today. I think it's been one of the fun aspects of this bourbon series has been covering the beginning and ends of these lines from from Henry and now his his head that was relocated <laughs> and the strange Comte de Chambord, the last French bourbon uh 
Philip for Spanish. It's mm-hmm. interesting to see the the group of people when you put them that way, and the and the type of people who found lines and who end them. Yeah, definitely. He's he was a he was a good founder. I think he's still strange bird, but strange bird definitely. But you know, like we said, he was known for a lot of reforms and also known, I think, especially for building up the Spanish Navy. So he did a lot. And Elizabeth also stuck around for a long time as well. She actually outlived Ferdinand um, and ended up acting as regent for a few months before her son Charles III came back to Spain to rule. So she was around and Farinelli was in the picture for a while, too. He ended up really achieving distinction as a Spanish impresario, and he took an active role in public affairs, too. And Charles III, I think, eventually dismissed him because they had political differences, but he still was around for a while and ended up retiring peacefully to Italy and was very wealthy at the time. So, well, And, and Devlina and I were talking about how we might have to revisit some of these famous castrati, just because, I mean... I know y'all are interested in that. You'd have to be, right? Yeah, and there's an <laughs> exhumation involved. There is an exhumation. Farinelli's body was exhumed in 2006 for study, so, you know. So that sounds we promising. En- we began with a head. We began the Burden series <laughs> with a head, and now we're ending with exhumed <laughs> remains. Something else. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. like to bookend it like that. <laughs> well, um, yeah, so that's that's the end of the Bourbon series. I'm sure we will, of course, revisit this family. How could we not? How could we not revisit people at least influenced by the Bourbons? Um, but it's been it's been pretty interesting talking about all these different rulers and the people close to them, people associated with them. I always like a good series. The series was fun. It was fun to see how everybody was connected and just also explore some of the tinier stories, too. I think just pull out some of these little intrigues and um, random medical conditions that we didn't know people had. I love medical conditions. Yes. Um, So, yeah, if you have any more suggestions for cool series, I mean, it'll probably be a little while, but we're always up for a series, as we mentioned. It's fun to to just enter that world completely. Um, feel free to drop us a note. We're on Twitter at Mist in History. We're on Facebook. And you can also send us an email at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We'd love to hear your ideas. Yeah, and if you would like to learn a little bit more about how bipolar disorder works, maybe compare what you read to some of the symptoms that Philip V had, you can look up a story about it on our website just by visiting our homepage and typing in bipolar disorder at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. iTunes.